there's a big question about where people will go, but where wherever they do go, right? Like we have an opportunity, local officials, planners, the federal government has an opportunity to try to guide that migration and that displacement to, to create a better society on the other side. Right? Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The wildfires that obliterated parts of Maui this week have been shocking. They're the deadliest fires in the U.S. in at least a century. While the Maui wildfires were far more lethal, they have something in common with the floods that ravaged parts of Vermont last month. Both disasters were fueled by climate change, and both have displaced numerous people from their homes. Disasters such as these are forcing large numbers of people from their homes and communities. Many will never return. In 2021, one in three Americans had experienced some kind of weather disaster. Journalists Teak Root and Jake Biddle cover climate change as staff writers for Grist, a nonprofit news organization. Root recently reported on how FEMA's flood maps are outdated because they do not take climate change into account. The maps failed to cover many areas in Vermont that were flooded this July. Biddle is the author of a new book, The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. He observes that climate change is forcing a mass migration in the U.S. as people try to escape the next climate disaster. I spoke with both journalists about their reporting. Atik Root and Jake Biddle, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Um, I'm going to start, Atik, with you uh, your article that you did for Grist that was also republished in Vermont Digger was about the floods in Vermont in July and the inadequacy of the flood mapping that had been done. Uh, what caught my eye was that the photograph and the story that you described, I encountered uh, right before I saw your article. I was going to my dentist in Barrie. And in a very odd location, I looked over to see a garage knocked off its foundation. And I'm looking, going, this doesn't seem like a flood zone. Why would that place be? Because it's a little bit elevated and out of the main part. But then when I, as I slowed down, because I was doing a double take, I noticed a little stream running by that. And I kind of used my imagination to think that that little stream became a raging torrent during the floods of July. So um, tell me about this home in Barrie um, that became your sort of entry point into your story, a place that was seriously damaged, if not destroyed, but it wasn't in where people expected to see it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had the same reaction when I first saw it. And I actually talked to the neighbor of the house with the garage and there were there were four houses um right along that stream you mentioned and uh this woman said she and she didn't think any of her neighbors uh expected flooding at all it was a stream that was a maybe a few inches deep half a foot deep at most times and when this rain came it just completely went up and over the road and uh you know almost knocked her garage off the foundation the other garage off the foundation um and it was a good quarter mile half mile outside of the fema 100 year floodplain 
But when I started looking into it, there are other models out there um, that aren't FEMAs, for example, riskfactor.com, which is backed by the uh, First Street Foundation um, nonprofit flood map. She was at a 10 out of 10 flood risk. And so she just hadn't thought that this uh, stream could do the damage that it ended up doing. And she her basement had five feet of water in it. Her power house was out power. And um, you know, similarly, her neighbors got hit as well. So this became the entry point into a larger story that you tell about maps. How can two different flood maps show one area in a predictable flood zone and another at no risk? But in fact, it is at risk. Right. And I think it's it's pretty interesting. I think it has partially to do with methodology and partially to do with how those products are supposed to be used. So FEMA argues that its maps aren't a record of historical flooding, nor a predictor of future flooding, but rather a snapshot in time from when they make the map. Um, and so they don't include future conditions when they're making maps, so climate change, et cetera. Um, so that's that's one reason that their maps are different than, say, First Street Foundations, which takes in a range of other sources, um, you know, other rainfall atlases, you know, both public and private data, climatological data. And so they have, uh, you know, what some might argue is a more robust methodology for making their flood predictions. Um, and, and so that is one reason um, for the difference. But like incompleteness is just a a whole a whole nother um, issue as well. FEMA only maps about a third of the country right now, um, and that stream was one of those streams that just either wasn't included or wasn't up to date in the FEMA maps. Um, Let, and, let's just take a, a step back and explain what are flood maps and why do they matter. Uh, you know, many people who are not in any sort of flood risk area have no idea about the world of flood maps. So explain. Yeah, so flood maps were originally created as part of the National Insur Flood Insurance Program. Um, so the idea is if you're supposed to get insurance, if you're in a high-risk flood area, we're, we need to know where those high-risk flood areas are. And so that was sort of the genesis of these maps. And they were originally created for big rivers and main arteries like, you know, the Mississippi and other and other main rivers, um, you know, in Vermont, it would be sort of Lamoille, the Winooski, the, the sort of major arteries. Um, and so FEMA's goal was to sort of use those maps to decide who needed flood insurance and partially to decide how much they would have to pay in flood insurance. Um, but over the years, these maps uh, haven't sort of kept up with the times in a lot of ways and their usefulness has um you know as some people would argue uh, diminished considerably and so in vermont um it's not required but most properties that are sold come with a seller's property information report and there's a line in there that will tell you whether your house is in a flood zone or not and then if you have a private mortgage you're required to get flood insurance flood insurance um uh with that uh, with that um, house, a, federal, a federally backed mortgage. And so that's how most people encounter these uh, 
you know, these flood maps and flood insurance, you know, but in Vermont, there's only about 3,500, 4,000 properties that are actually inside um, a FEMA flood zone. So it's not uncommon for Vermonters to go, you know, their whole lives without having to think about a flood map. You talk about and you interview a family in Cambridge, Vermont, uh, a town that was also flooded. And she was shocked to learn that she was in a flood zone, but had no idea of it. She just wasn't in a flood zone that FEMA recognized. Tell us a little bit about her story. Yeah, uh, no. And I, I think there were a few people on Main Street in Cambridge. Um, you know, the road goes right down the center of town. There's the market and a few houses on one side and a few houses on the other. And sort of the water comes up um, from the Lamoille past what's known as the uh, wrong, way, wrong Way Bridge. Um, and it was just sort of a, a, a dotting um, of not quite random, but, you know, seemingly, uh, you know, somewhat random which houses were in the FEMA flood zone and which weren't. You know, one neighbor would be and one neighbor wouldn't be. And so a lot of people were surprised when the water, um, you know, came up as as high as uh, as high as it did. Um, and so there's one woman um, named Pearl Dennis. Her She had a multi-unit um, building and uh, her the water came up two feet into her uh, first floor. She was left with, uh, you know, 600 pound hay bales in her backyard um, you know, she, when I saw her, she was outside, you know, cleaning off, you know, the majority of her possessions and, you know, throwing away what needed to be. And, you know, she just didn't, she wasn't in a FEMA flood zone. Um, and she says that in 2019, she got water up to her steps and she realized, oh, wait, maybe there's, you know, something here. And that when she tried to go and get uh, flood insurance, it was, you know, either prohibitively expensive, uh, or she said that one company um, actually denied her, uh, which FEMA says shouldn't be happening because they, anybody, um, you know, should be uh, eligible for flood insurance if they, if their town is part of the flood insurance program. So, it, you know, it, it was, it's just a story of surprise for a lot of folks all around, not everyone, of course, but, but, but many. And you mentioned a website where people can go to uh, to see where they live as viewed by other flood maps. Remind us of what that website is. Yeah, that's riskfactor.com. It is one place you can go to see a different um, view of your flood risk. And then the state of Vermont has actually, uh, over the last decade or so, created its own what they call river corridor maps. Um, and those are also different than FEMA's, and they try to lay out the area where um, a river should be allowed to meander during a flood, um, because uh, sort of ecologically, uh, that would actually um, reduce, uh, you know, the velocity and you know power the river has. The problem with the Vermont ones is they're pretty hard to find. You have to go deep in the state's uh, natural resources atlas and, you know, mess around there to figure it out. So the easiest one that I've come across is riskfactor.com. And that's actually built into uh, redfin.com as well, the real estate site. Um, so when you're looking for houses, there, there will be a, uh, a flood risk listing um, there as well. 
So the larger context here, you note that there are some 6 million people living in flood zones in the country who don't know it. And that part of the problem, it was exacerbated during the Trump administration. Explain what happened, how FEMA fell even further behind in its mapping. Yeah, so when First Street compared its model um, to the FEMA maps, it found that at least 5.9 million people were at um, flood risk who weren't in the FEMA 100-year floodplain. You know, and part of this is due to the reasons I mentioned before, that FEMA isn't taking into account climate change. FEMA's maps are outdated and they're often incomplete. Um, in 2012, Congress directed FEMA to start including future conditions and particularly sea level rise in its um, mapping. Uh, but that, you know, 30, 11 years on hasn't um, hasn't really happened. And sort of a FEMA spokesman told me that that's in part because uh, when the Trump administration came in, it's an administration that didn't put climate change at the top of its priority list, or even in some cases believe in you know human caused climate change, and that was one reason that the effort to include future conditions sort of slowed, um, you know during during that administration, um, yeah it is one reason for the delay. What is the solution, or at least some indication of improvement, on the horizon here? Is there any? indication that things are going to get better or are people still going to be in the dark and underwater as it were yeah i mean i think places like riskfactor.com show that it is possible to do better flood modeling and fema actually has um, its own updated uh, model for pricing flood insurance which it calls risk rating 2.0 and that actually takes into account a lot of uh you know, the deficiencies that the maps have. Um, the issue is that risk rating 2.0 isn't publicly available and you have to go to an insurance agent or an insurance broker to get uh, a sense of what your insurance pricing would be under risk rating 2.0. So it's possible to make these um, these changes. And even to FEMA flood maps, there are some places like Houston that have worked with FEMA to update their flood maps and start to include future conditions. Um, you know, uh, Charlotte, Mecklenburg County is another one. And so it's possible for towns um, and communities to, to reach out to FEMA and say, hey, we want to make our flood maps more up to date um, and, and you know, include uh, a wider range of conditions. And FEMA seems open to working um, with communities to do that. So, so that is definitely uh, promising from what I've seen, um, the fact that it's possible and some places have done it. I, I'm just don't know how quickly FEMA will do it or prioritize it given, you know, everything that, um, you know, they have to do deal with and resource constraints on their end. All right. Well, Teak Root, uh, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Um, we're, Teak Root is a staff writer for GRIST and uh, a nonprofit newsroom focused on climate justice issues. We're going to turn now to another GRIS staff writer, uh, Jake Biddle. Uh, he is also the author of the new book, The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. Uh, Jake, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I want to uh, 
digress a little bit from the focus of your book to talk about what's the headlines right now, which is yet another climate disaster. Each one seems to, you know, we seem to be in a game of one-upmanship of how horrific these can be. And certainly the fires in Maui um, have shocked everyone. And I know you're involved in reporting on this. What did you see as a somebody who covers climate disasters on a regular basis? What strikes you about the Hawaii wildfires? Yeah, I man, I think that that the most striking thing about it, it sounds a little obvious, right? But the the death toll is extremely high for a wildfire in the modern era. Like more than a hundred people likely will have ended up dying as a result of this fire. And that that's more than the the campfire in paradise, which burned a million acres, which is much larger than than Maui itself, right? Um, and I think that the reason for this, right, and this is something that that uh, we come back to a lot in reporting on climate disasters is that, you know, there were, there was no readiness for this kind of disaster. Right? Like they just weren't ready for a wildfire of this speed in such an area. We saw this happen, for instance, in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, after this big heat dome, heat wave that happened in 2021, many people died because there was no air conditioning, right? There was no preparation. Hurricane Ida, when it hit New York City uh, in 2021 in September, many people died because they were in basement units and they didn't know that a flood like this was possible. So I think what we see is places that are not ready for these disasters and that aren't accustomed to thinking that this is possible. That's where you see a lot of people die. That's where you see not only a lot of property damage, which happens all over, but you know people really get caught. They're not ready and, and they, they pass away, unfortunately. Part of your work is focused on what happens to the people after these disasters. Um, what is going to happen now in Hawaii as it follows uh, a script that you are very familiar with, but others are not? Um, where do you see the people going? Yeah, I mean, this is it's very difficult to say right now, but the general pattern, right, is that everybody ends up without a place to go. Like I think there's at least 3000 uh, housing units were destroyed in Maui already. So everyone ends up without a place to go. They find temporary shelter, mostly getting reimbursed by FEMA assistance. And then it's really a crapshoot, right? Like those at the lower end of the income scale who maybe owned homes will now probably have to rent. Those who were renting before may get priced out of the areas where they wanted to live. And there's just this sort of chaotic process of displacement and relocation that for some people who aren't as well resourced can go on for years at a time, right? Like maybe you end up living with your family maybe a couple hundred miles away and you try to come back and you rent, but you can't afford it. And it, it's really, really different for every person, but it's very tumultuous, right? And only the people with the highest uh, amount of A, income, right? And B, equity in their homes are able to, to get back to stability relatively quickly. And who lives in vulnerable areas, areas that are vulnerable to climate disasters by and large? Yeah, so I mean, statistically, it tends to be low-income people, people of color, Hispanic people, but <clears throat> excuse me, but I think that in each place, you find different patterns, right? So in Miami, for instance, the most vulnerable parts of that city are actually the wealthiest parts of the city and the parts that are you know most attractive to tourists and developers. Whereas in a place like Houston, historically, 
the parts that were most vulnerable to flooding were on the outskirts of the city. They were right up against these, you know, sort of semi-polluted bayous that nobody really wanted to be near. And they flooded all the time, right? So they were highly unattractive to live at. So it really depends on where you are, but there is always a pattern, right? Like it's either, you know, the people who are in, on waterfronts and coastal areas, it tends to be the wealthiest people who are at the most risk, but then almost everywhere else, Every, people try to stay away from the, the flood zone, right? Or the fire zone. And it's the people who can't afford to live anywhere else that end up in those, in the sort of crosshair, so to speak. You tell the story of the Fuentes family in Houston and what happened to them after Hurricane Harvey. Um, share their story with us. Yeah, so these were, this was a young couple. Uh, the the wife was actually pregnant right at the time that Hurricane Harvey hit, and they had saved up for years to put a down payment on this first sort of starter home that they had in this community. And as Teek shared, you know, they were not technically in a FEMA flood zone. They didn't know that they needed flood insurance, but they lived next to this reservoir that was owned by the Army Corps of Engineers. And during the storm, the reservoir overflowed for the first time. It uh, destroyed their house and they ended up having to move back in with with Becca's mother um, right as Becca had twins. So this was like a really, really profoundly difficult situation. Um, at the same time, then a few years later, COVID hit and their incomes took a hit. And basically they got stuck in limbo for for four or five years. You know, they they were upwardly mobile. They were a sort of lower middle class family that was on their way to home ownership and the equity and a wealth advancement that comes with that. And they lost it all in a day, basically. And they still haven't yet found their way back out of Becca's mother's house. Like even finding an apartment has been too difficult with the added expense of the child. So really everything lined up um, to, to ruin their lives essentially. But I think that the important thing to highlight about them and what made their story so powerful to me is that they were kind of the image of, what we think of as like the American dream of upward mobility, right? They both worked really hard. They were high school sweethearts and they finally managed to get this house and they did everything right. No one told them they had to buy flood insurance because they weren't in a flood zone. Uh, and then they ended up losing it all anyway. Now, the government, the Army Corps of Engineers, knew that the reservoir could overflow uh, into the land around it, but they didn't do anything to stop development on that land. How can that be? I mean, they're the folks, the Army Corps are the folks who are, you know, planning for everything and every contingency. How could it be that they allowed a whole community to locate itself in essentially the bottom of a teacup? Yeah, so that's, it's an analogous situation to the FEMA flood maps, right, where FEMA has an index of what they think a flood looks like, and they draw the map based on that sort of benchmark flood, so to speak, and everywhere out of that, maybe it's still risky, but we don't quite consider it to be uh, as risky or it's not labeled as such, right? So the core, they knew that a potential flood could go past the boundaries of the reservoir, but they didn't see fit. Basically, they couldn't justify the expense of buying all the land because their benchmark flood, what they call the standard project flood, they thought it was highly unlikely that this would ever happen, right? And to be fair, I mean, Hurricane Harvey was a once in a thousand years, so to speak, event. It dropped 58 plus inches of rain on Houston. That was almost nobody foresaw that. But the Corps did know that it, <laughs> that it was declining to purchase that land, right? So they didn't own the land that, that the Fuentes had their house on. They just made the decision not to buy it. And so in the years since then, though, 
a federal judge did find them liable. And so in theory, they have to pay a, a takings uh, payment to everybody whose home flooded. They, essentially, the Corps impounded their land involuntarily by letting it flood. So there will be some restitution, but it'll be very, very late in coming. So just, uh, you know, the Fuentes, you use them to to tell a larger story. Hurricane Harvey was five years ago. How are they doing today? Um, they're they're doing all right. I mean, they're they're extremely resilient people. Um, and so last I spoke, they were looking for apartments. Their incomes had rebounded a little bit, and they were they were optimistic that they were going to be able to get an apartment because uh, their their two sons are about to start school. So they really want to uh, find an apartment so they can have a permanent residence and, and not have to move them between schools every time that they, you know, change school districts, right? So they're, they were pretty optimistic. I should check in with them because they they probably, the school year is about to start, but they were optimistic that they were going to finally uh, get out of Becca's mom's house and get an apartment. So things are looking up, but again, it's five years, first five years of their kid's life living doubled up, right? And then, you know, five years of their 20s and 30s that they won't get back. Jake, tell us a little bit about how this came to be your beat. And the book is really a an exhaustive survey all around the country of essentially places that are in harm's way. Um, how did this catch your eye? And so before I wrote about climate change, I mostly wrote about housing and homelessness. And at a certain point, I learned about this FEMA program where uh, they basically pay local governments to purchase and demolish homes that are vulnerable to flooding, right? So I wrote about this in Houston, where thousands of homes have been torn down and the people have been given money to move somewhere else. I thought this was a fascinating program because it had kind of created like miniature ghost towns in the middle of Houston. But it quickly became clear, you know, that two things, right? One, there were a ton of people in this program and nobody knew much about it. And two, nobody really knew where people ended up after they took this money. There was very, very little information about it. FEMA couldn't tell me, Houston couldn't tell me, neighbors couldn't tell me. And it sort of became clear that there was a, a big pattern, right, in the way that we talk about climate disasters, which is that we know that they destroy a bunch of homes and leave people without homes. But we don't really know where all those people end up. And it was it essentially looks like a mass eviction event in the moment. Right. Like it's it really is housing displacement, but caused by, you know, climate change. So I, I wanted to start from that angle. And then that sort of bloomed out to a bigger beat on reporting on disasters and, and climate change as a whole. In your travels around the country to document and your book, you go from California to North Carolina to Florida to Texas to Arizona to Virginia. What's a story that just sort of stands out to you that really captured the essence of what you're trying to convey? Yeah, I think that the story that that stood out the most to me was the story of this indigenous community called Poinashin in South Louisiana, probably about an hour, an hour and a half south of New Orleans. And they were an entirely self-sufficient and somewhat isolated community for a very, very long time. Like they could grow, you know, the herbs that they needed, raise livestock, and they mostly shrimp and fish for oysters, right? Um, and then because of a, a few different things, right? One was the arrival of the oil industry, which dredged up a lot of the swamp. Number two was, you know, the gradual rising of sea levels, right? 
they became, you know, not only no longer self-sufficient, but a lot of their cultural traditions were, became impossible, right? Like the ground became too wet to raise livestock on. It was too saline to grow the same herbs. And so it wasn't just that they lost homes. A lot of them did thanks to, you know, floods, but also they lost like a way of life. And, you know, that's a very unique community. It's a one of a kind community in a lot of ways, but it did seem like something that was kind of a, a portentous for the future of climate change that, there's going to be a lot of property destruction, et cetera. But in addition to that, uh, there's going to be a lot of sort of more intangible things that that will be lost as well. You write that um, in 2021, one in three Americans had experienced a weather disaster of some kind, uh, which is pretty uh, shocking. I want to talk about the title, The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. This is uh, not the first American migration you point out. So talk about some of the big movements of people in American history and what you see coming with climate movements. Yeah, so I think that the you know the title, the Great Displacement, is an it's an oblique reference to the Great Migration, right? Which is a, a, a an enormous movement, a, a very um, unidirectional movement of African-American people from the, the South uh, to the North, which took place from you know, about the 1920s to the 1970s. And there were a lot of reasons why this happened, right? One was that the, the it was unlivable, right? In the Jim Crow South, also industrializing Northern cities, promised more jobs, better wages, et cetera. Um, and then so, you know, millions of, of Black people moved from the South to the North over the course of a few decades. And I wanted to compare, you know, this migration from climate change, which will be just as large, if not larger, with that migration event, because they are they they look very different, right? Like the Great Migration started from one place and it ended up in another place. We moved from Alabama and Mississippi to you know Chicago and New York predominantly. Um, but the migration from climate change sort of starts all over the country. It starts in coastal areas, starts in the desert, starts in wildfire areas, and the movement is much more chaotic. Uh, people move shorter distances, they move multiple times, sometimes they move and they come back. So I wanted to kind of reorient the discussion around what's often called climate migration around a, a different word, which is more common in housing studies, which is displacement, right? It's not so much that you're picking up in one place and moving all the way across the country to another place, it's that you're you're being buffeted around by these bigger forces. And of course, this displacement is happening at a time where there is, I don't know if it's an, a record, but at least an epic housing crunch in many places. Certainly that's the story in Vermont. There just aren't places to relocate to. How is that playing out on the national stage? Where, you know, what is happening when people need housing? Yeah, so you can think of, you know, a, a disaster like a flood or a fire as just like an extra sort of straw that broke the camel's back for what are usually already pretty broken housing markets. Like I reported on this city called Santa Rosa, north of San Francisco, where there was already a severe housing crisis, as you probably know, because it's California. Um, and then the fire in 2017 destroyed, you know, upwards of 4,000 housing units overnight. So it was sort of like there were zero vacant homes before and now there's like less than zero because everybody who lost their home at the high end of the income scale then you know displaced someone else who was a little lower income out of a home and and down and down and down and it ended up being you know the renters people without much equity who ended up 
either becoming homeless, which happened a lot, or they would have to to flee, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away to to live with their family or something to find a place that they could afford to stay. Right. So definitely climate change adds another level of stress to housing markets that are already really, really, really stressed. And it makes everything harder. Right. It just and then you add the fact that building costs are very high. It's very difficult to rebuild a lot of homes, which means that the recovery takes even longer. And it's really only the the most well-resourced people who have the ability to get back to where they were. You know, we're we're at the beginning of wildfire season in California. Um, so I hate to say the worst is yet to come and sound like, uh, you know, the gloom and doom prophet. But um, I have to say that watching from afar what has been happening in California, it seems that you know, you you mentioned Santa Rosa. There are whole swaths of California that are becoming no-go zones that are, you know, you really have to be tempting fate and fire to be moving to. What is your sense of that? Yeah, I mean, for somebody with enough money, right, and sufficient insurance coverage, you can always rebuild, right? And 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 for a lot wildfires are sort of unique in that once one happens in one area, like because it's burned away all the vegetation, you've generally bought yourself a few years before the next one at minimum. But I do think you're right that there's places where it's becoming financially impossible to support human development. And so like in California, those are the most remote sections of the you know the Sierra Nevada, which are extremely flammable, right? But they're also very remote. And those are places where insurance companies are are no longer really willing to offer homeowners insurance because the expected losses from fires are just so great that it's impossible for the companies to, to turn a profit if they offer coverage in those areas. So I think that it's not so much that people psychologically will say, well, it's just impossible. Like, well, they'll say, oh, we all don't want to live here anymore. Not a single person's willing to live here because people are highly attached to the places that they're from. And they have all sorts of good reasons for wanting to live in remote areas sometimes, but it's that, you know, the financial architecture that supports homeownership will no longer be sustainable. And those are the areas where you're stuck to see they'll, they'll empty out, right? Because there's just not enough resources to continue the rebuild over and over again. That's one of the more interesting dynamics at play now, which is, you know, while politicians are arguing over climate change, Insurance companies are just doing the math. It's very unsentimental for them. Uh, when the math, when the numbers don't make add up, they pull out. They're pulling out of Florida. They're pulling out of California. Big, big insurance companies. How do you see this playing out? I mean, are they going to just continue to recede from large areas of the country and that those areas will be uninsurable? Yeah, I mean, I think that it that's it's possible that that may happen in in certain you know pockets of a state like California, but obviously there's a strong. So if if there's no one if no one can get insurance in a state, right? That means essentially nobody can have a mortgage, which is obviously a highly politically undesirable state of affairs. So I think that the most likely outcome, right, is not that the states will let the companies pull out, but that they will inject enormous amounts of of public resources to prop up a market that otherwise you know isn't sustainable so like when we were talking about flood insurance earlier with teak like the whole reason that the u.s government offers flood insurance is because after a, a series of big floods in the 1920s 
private insurers stopped selling it in the United States. And so there was no option but for the government to step in and provide a kind of public backstop uh, for flood insurance, which is separate from a traditional homeowner's policy. So you could imagine, and something similar happened with earthquakes in California, right? That's sold through public forum. You could imagine something similar happening with fire, fire insurance in California or with hurricane insurance in Florida, where it's really a government program, which is obviously funded by the taxpayers. Um, and then it just has the sort of appearance of a private market. But I think that the important thing to note about that, right, is that when you have a, an ins a private insurance market, people who are at greatest risk, they tend to pay the most, right? But when it's taxpayer subsidized, basically everybody in the state is on the hook for the riskiest properties. So you could have like a single mother in Orlando in the inland of Florida who doesn't even own a home. She's a taxpayer and now she's subsidizing the risky properties that are on the beachfront in Fort Lauderdale, right? That's That's what it means when you socialized climate risk like that. And that's that's also a politically undesirable state of affairs for different reasons. So as we speak about a great uh, migration and a great displacement, where are people migrating to? Yeah, great question. And a, a difficult one to answer thus far. What we know basically, and this is true both anecdotally and in you know the sociological studies that have been done, is people tend to want to stay close to home for as long as they can. When they do move, they tend to move short distances. They want to maintain their existing, you know, employment, their existing social networks, their family connections, um, and they tend to move away from the riskiest areas. Like they'll probably move away from the the riverfront flood zone, but they won't move out of the region altogether, right? So they'll move from the the bayou side property in Houston to maybe like a suburb that's still vulnerable to hurricanes, but not quite as bad. Or maybe they'll move from the most remote area of California to a, a nearby city. And what we expect longer term, and this is somewhat conjectural, right? But what we expect longer term is that you'll see people move to growing cities within the South and the Southeast that aren't, they don't face existential risk, right? So this is someone moving from Miami to Atlanta or from New Orleans to Dallas. Like they want to get out of the bullseye, so to speak. But they have, you know, cultural, political, economic, family reasons, whatever, for wanting to stay, so to speak, like on the on the dartboard, as it were. So that would be the rational explanation that people stay nearby, get a little further from danger. But you point out that the fastest growing cities in the country are the hottest and driest cities, places like Phoenix, Miami and Dallas. Uh, explain. Yeah, so I mean, for a long time, thanks to air conditioning and a massive federal government investment in water supply infrastructure, it has been possible for these cities to grow somewhat comfortably, right? If you made anything more than like the lowest tiers of income, you could afford air conditioning and you lived in a city that itself could afford to keep buying water as it grew, right? And that we're now getting to the ceiling of that comfort zone, right? Where on the one hand, there's not a lot more water to go around in places like Phoenix because there's so much water use in the Colorado River and because they've tapped the underground aquifers so much and they're not really being refilled because it's so dry. And on the other hand, which I think is even more important, right? Um, summer temperatures in these places are becoming unlivably hot for, especially for the elderly, for young children, for outdoor workers. But then also at a psychological level, even for people who have air conditioning, 
it's not so fun right to spend like three months in an air-conditioned room without leaving just like you know in vermont parts of the northeast united states sometimes you can't really go outside all winter right especially if you live in a remote area like people don't like that right and for the same reason that people left michigan and wisconsin to move to the Sun Belt, i think over time not quite yet you'll see people they'll reach the ceiling of that comfort zone and they'll want to move away from you know phoenix right and go somewhere more temperate so we don't see statistical evidence that that happening on a large scale phoenix is still growing very 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 fast as anyone who lives there will tell you but it, it does seem like based on past migration trends right it's becoming less hospitable and over time that growth we would expect it to slow down somewhat in at some point so the northeast and and places like vermont um are often cited as you know, places of refuge where climate refugees are going to gradually shift to. I don't know if the data bears that out. Is there actually a, a pattern that's established where there are net gainers uh, in terms of parts of the country at this point? Um, I mean, mathematically speaking, if a bunch of people leave the, the hottest and driest areas, it would be places like Vermont that would, would have to gain population. But I think there's two things, right? One, we don't really know which areas of the country people will end up in. Like there's a lot of parts of the country that are relatively temperate and insulated from the disasters that we've seen so far. Number two is we don't exactly know when this would happen. It depends a lot on how much money we spend on adapting to climate change and on public attitudes in general. And then number three, though, is like, I think that that the question of gain is is really interesting, right? Because a lot of cities like Buffalo, Cincinnati, they've set them up, they set themselves up as like climate havens and climate refuges, right? Like they want they want to grow because they're underpopulated now as it is, right? Well, well Buffalo has to hope that people don't watch the news in the winter where they're by snow. Right. They have their own weather problems, right? And like and so so too does almost every other place in the country. Um, and I think the question, though, is like, what is the impact if a lot of people start moving to a place that's historically been underpopulated and under-resourced, right? Like, you could imagine thousands of people flocking to Cincinnati if it becomes a new tech hub. You know, at peak population, Cincinnati had about twice as many people as it does now, right? So, but the question is, what happens to people who already live there, right? And there's concerns about property values going up, jockeying for space, right? Like those apartments all have to get rehabilitated. There's potential for gentrification. And I think like probably people in Vermont might have similar concerns where it's like, we don't really want tons of people coming here overnight because there will be negative impacts for us. And there's potential displacement. There's potential displacement that results from that too, right? So there's a really existential question there. We don't really have enough information to answer it yet. You write that how we adapt to the era of climate displacement will depend on how we answer a very simple question. What do we owe to each other? Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so I think that when you take a look at all these climate disasters, right, and you, you take a look at the sort of symptoms of them, right, people lose their homes, they end up immiserated or broke because they don't have anywhere to go you start to think, okay, well, what's the solution? The solution is for the government to intervene, right? And, and provide some form of housing guarantee for people who've lost their homes, right? But then like we were just talking about, right? The people who lost their homes and then get this guarantee would show up in a place and maybe displace somebody else. So quickly, like, and this isn't just my view, right? This is the view of people who've studied the problem as well. It's really difficult to fix 
the problem of climate displacement without trying to provide a structural fix for the problem of housing displacement more generally, right? And so then the question is, well, is housing, should housing be a guarantee in this country, right? The way that we have guarantees for other rights. You know, this is something that like Franklin Roosevelt talked about in the, the Four Freedoms speech, right? Like perhaps we should consider like a public housing to be a public right. And if that were the case, it would be incumbent on the government to ensure that everybody had access to safe and affordable shelter, which is not really currently the case, right? And like, that's sort of what I was getting at the question of what do we owe to each other is like, what should be a social guarantee? And when you start thinking along the lines of the problem of climate displacement, you quickly get to the problem of just housing instability generally, right? And that's sort of like the the easiest way of answering the question is to 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 put the onus on the state to make housing like more accessible for everybody, not just people who lose their homes in a hurricane, right? So as we're talking about the great displacement and these vast migration patterns, um, there's also the issue of the southern border of international movement of people. How much do you view the crisis at the southern border as a climate crisis uh, byproduct? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult to know statistically right now that you know what the causes of people who are currently waiting at the border, right? But certainly, you would expect as climate disasters get more severe, and they have already become extraordinarily severe in in South and Central America, you would expect more people to try to emigrate to the United States. So I would say, like, regardless of what the, what it's at now, like it's increasingly a problem. Like there were giant hurricanes two or three years ago in the Northern Triangle and people's farms and stuff got wiped out. The villages became uninhabitable. And a lot of those people have ended up seeking asylum in the United States. Um, I think that the question that I have is like, whether this will be, whether this, this migration will be treated as a climate issue or an immigration issue in public discourse in the United States. Because as you know, up until now, this is talked about as immigration. It's talked about as the crisis of the southern border it's not talked about as a symptom of climate change and i think the question that i have is like if we talk about it as climate change then what happens does it get easier to address the issues of immigration and asylum does it get more difficult i don't know the answers to those but definitely there's a there's a huge overlap there you know you've you've made the point that uh in the past the great migration of african americans from the south to the north uh, was, you know, it was brought on by the calamity of uh, slavery and Jim Crow, but it also in, uh, became an opportunity for uh, cultural shifts in the North, a diverse, you know, a greater diversification of the Northern parts of the country, places like Chicago, New York. What do you think is the opportunity here, the, the good that can come of the misery uh, if we learn something from climate migration. Yeah, so I mean, certainly, like, if you assume that a lot of this displacement is just baked in, right, that no matter what we do on carbon emissions, right, there's going to be some amount of people probably in the millions by the end of the century, right, that are going to lose their homes, and they're going to need to be relocated, and we're going to have to help them find somewhere to go, right? then you have an opportunity to build a society that is safer, right? And fairer and more equitable. And also just, you know, like more energy efficient, right? 
greener. Every home that gets destroyed, right, is an opportunity to build a better home, potentially in a safer place, right, that can last longer and, and, and to do it in a way that opens it up to more people, right? So I think that we don't know where those homes are going to be built, right? It could be in Vermont. Maybe it's just up the road in Georgia, you know, just, just out of the zone of most hurricane risk, right? Like, there's a big question about where people will go, but where wherever they do go, right, like we have an opportunity, local officials, planners, the federal government has an opportunity to try to guide that migration and that displacement to to create a better society on the other side. Right. Well, Jake Biddle, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much. Jake Biddle is a staff writer for Grist. His new book is The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. Thank you.